Dr. Robin Axelrod. On my drive to work one morning, I thought, how could I promote unity between OT and OTA students? How could I foster communication and leadership skills and promote our amazing profession? Welcome to my OT Journey podcast. Have you seen the 2021 My OT Journey Planner? This is Dr. Robin Axelrod. This planner is a must for OT students and practitioners. Check it out at myotjourney.com. Welcome to the My OT Journey podcast. Today is a special episode. The AOTA elections are coming up really, really soon. And I have a guest with me today, Dr. Victoria Garcia Wilburn, who is running for board of directors at AOTA. She's an assistant professor of occupational therapy in the School of Health and Human Sciences at Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis. She's also a community-engaged scholar practitioner with an area of expertise in programmatic outcome measurement for occupational therapy communities in underserved practice settings. Her most current projects focus on investigating the outcomes from implementing occupation-based programming for adolescents in substance use disorder recovery. She's an awardee of the Robert Wood Johnson New Connections Award, the Latino Leadership Circle from Indiana Latino Institute, the 2018 Occupational Therapist of the Year from the Indiana Occupational Therapy Association, and a recent fellow from the AOTA. Congrats on that. Thank she's you. Also, <laughs> she's the <laughs> current um, chairperson for the Affiliate State Associations of Presidents, AOTA, and is a candidate for the 2021 Board of Directors position. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. Okay, so um, you've done so much. Let's start back um, in the beginning. Let's talk about um, your educational path, your choose, choose, um, choosing of a school, and, and first and foremost, choosing of occupational therapy as a profession. How did you come to choose OT? Oh, man. So I guess in all transparency, I will say, and I might get some pushback from this, <laughs> is that originally I was a physical therapy major um, because I had never heard of occupational therapy. So, you know, I think um, so many of us come to OT in that way, unfortunately, but um, I was really excited when I heard about it. So how this all went was... Um, I'm a first-generation college attendee. It's something that I'm, I'm really proud of. Um, but as many first-gens know, you're doing all of that legwork yourself. So I'm like filling out my own FAFSA forms, looking at programs. And because I wanted to kind of have one central um, OT, you know, or PT process, I applied to programs, um, universities and colleges that only had PT programs. And I specifically was looking for direct admit um, programs. And so I was really honored when I received my um, letter of acceptance to Boston University's physical therapy program. And um, I, I'm sure they do this by design, but they have all the freshmen, you know, PT, OT, nursing, like this huge health professions interdisciplinary class called Intro to Health Professions, and they um, detail all of the different disciplines. And I remember, like, you know how in the movies they they you hear about something and it's like, oh, like you know, like somebody's lights like turn on and <laughs> angels are singing and like all of that. I felt like that way when the lecture on OT happened. Um, and so my eyes were just open to this discipline that 
really nicely blended, um, you know, science and art and creativity that I thought that is so me, that is so who I am. And I remember feeling really nervous. Like I had maybe made the wrong decision. Like here I went, put all my eggs in one basket and didn't know how this would turn out. Um, and so I remember calling my dad and mom and saying, I think I want to change majors. And I didn't really understand, I think, the magnitude of that risk. But looking back on it, it was a huge risk. So um, I, you know, I would have to forfeit my seat in the PT program and then reapply to Sargent College for their OT program. And I had no idea how competitive BU's OT program was at the time. Um, I really think it was fate that I got in, um, you know, I, I transferred successfully and I was mentored by some of the best faculty, um, you know, even to this day. So I'm just really grateful for that opportunity. So I don't really, I think OT for sure found me. And then when um, it found me, it was a hard thing to ever give up. So that's how I came to OT. Yeah, I think, you know, um, honestly, I had the same sort of experience. Like I also volunteered in a physical therapy clinic thinking that I wanted to go into physical therapy and then saw OTs working on the side and like that really drew me, that that became my passion. So I think a lot of us sort of share that experience and that's really why we love our profession so much is that we see how amazing and how different and how, you know, just different creative, so many different avenues that we can go into um, within the same profession. So um, that's, that's super interesting. So how, and how were you as a student? How was your student experience? Was it smooth? Did you have some, some difficult times? And what was it like for you as a first gen to be part of, you know, the whole college atmosphere? You know, um, I had seen my sisters. I'm a, I have, there's a bit of an age difference between myself and my four older sisters, but I had seen my sisters, go off to college. And I remember just being so excited for them that they were going to embark on this new part of their life. Like some of them went to school in Milwaukee. Some of them went to school um, down in Southern Illinois and just being really like excited about one day that'll be me. But I don't think I ever had any idea about how lonely that process can be sometimes. Um, I think, you know, in general, the first gen experience is, is exhilarating, but it's also, like I said, it's also lonely um, because you're navigating so much of it by yourself. Um, you know, my parents were wonderful support systems, support network as far as being really good listeners, but they really couldn't offer any advice. Um, and my siblings were marketing majors, you know, marketing and um, education. So they really didn't have any of like the lab sciences and all the gross anatomy and just, you know, so many things that are unique to our discipline. And so it was a little bit lonely. So I will say, um, I think it was so much more important for me to have mentors, even really early on that would be able to provide me advice that would be able to guide me, that would be able to encourage me in a way that they, you know, had that same journey and experience. And so I say to this day, that college experience of having mentors early, early on has led me to always um, seek out mentorship, even today in my career. So that was such a good lesson, you know, not to be afraid to ask for help, um, to rely on other people's wisdom and um, to be okay with not knowing, you know, everything, that it's okay to not know exactly how things will turn out and to trust the process. Um, so I'm kind of grateful for those early lessons for sure. 
Okay. And, and where did, where did your career path go from there from OT school? What did you go on to, to do? What was your first area of practice and what did that look like? Yeah. So, um, my spouse actually, it, what at the time was a professional opera singer. So my first experience was traveling along with him. So I was um, a travel OT to start out with. So we went to some exciting places like Santa Fe, New Mexico, um, St. Louis, Missouri, and then we landed in uh, Bloomington, Indiana. And so this was really supposed to be a two-year gig for him. Um, he was studying with a particular voice instructor at IU Bloomington, and I remember thinking like, okay, I can do anything for 24 months. Um, and so was working at a um, long-term acute care facility. And I really am thankful for that first experience of that stability of being in long-term acute care because it taught me um, just the real complexities of, um, you know, medic, medic, medical, um, complex, medically fragile patients and people that were vent dependent and, you know, require dialysis and how instrumental their OT sessions were for them. So those very, you know, very basic things like brushing our teeth for that day or sitting at the edge of the bed and having some dignity while eating. Um, those really, really small things in the beginning turned out to be um, huge lessons for me in the end. And it never let me forget the power of our profession. So I'm, I'm very thankful for that. Um, and, it, and you really, when you have that sort of medically complex background, you can, it really provides such good foundation for you for any, you know, career trajectory since then. So I would say that experience had really catapulted my interest in other areas of our profession. So um, for a long time, actually, I was a clinical liaison for our rehabilitation hospital here in Indiana. And being a, in case management is such a unique um, aspect of OT that I think we're completely underutilized because we have so much knowledge on a person's rehab trajectory and the medical complexity of things and the potential of discharging to an acute rehab and then maybe to home. Um, I think it makes us perfect case managers. So that clinical liaison position then really led to my interest in leadership and advocacy and ethics and insurance regulations and all of the wonderful things um, that I find myself doing today, right? So mm -hmm. I'm just thankful for those really early experiences. And I, I'm always, I always share with my students, like don't dismiss those early experiences because you don't know how they're gonna unfold themselves in the future. Like take every moment and learn something from it, right? Like you may not be excited to go on field work in this setting, but you're gonna learn something, right? And you're gonna take away something from that experience. So there, everything seems to line up and happen for a reason. And it's just um, putting on your investigatory lens and, and seeing what that reason is that I find exciting. That, that's really great advice. I think that's really, really good advice um, because, you know, students are always thinking about their fieldwork and they sort of think of their fieldwork as being their first job. And that could be the case, but it's not always the case. And it could just be, you know, small experiences within that big fieldwork picture that they take with them, but definitely they'll take it with them um, as they continue their career journey. What was your next step? What happened then? Um, well, gosh, so that's not all sequentially. So while all of that is happening, um, I'm also simultaneously um, starting a family and going to graduate school. So, um, <laughs> you know, wow. just minor, minor things happening in life, right? Um, so, you know, really early on to that uh, Indiana stay, um, we found out, you know, I was expecting and 
that was exciting. And, you know, we're young, newlywed couple, and here we are, you know, finding out we're going to be parents. And I, at that same time, I also felt like, you know, the next plan after Indiana was for me to go to graduate school somewhere. Right. And I kind of felt like, okay, did that dream die or is that dream deferred or, or how will we do this? And I remember talking to my husband about those early fears and and he said to me, you know, I'm going to support you with whatever you decide. So if you want to decide to, to go back to school now, you know, while you're having these kids and that's something you think you can do, like I'll support that. And so I just knew, like, I didn't know another way. So I'm, I'm having my first baby and then I'm enrolling in um, a graduate program. It was a combined MHS and DHS program at the University of Indianapolis. And um, it was a fantastic fit because it allowed me to um, take this post-professional journey and trajectory and still be able to work part-time and still be able to be a mom. Um, gosh, there's never such a thing in my opinion as a part-time mom. So <laughs> you know, you're, you're mom full-time and then going to school. And I was able to take those things that I was learning through my master's and, and doctorate portion and apply them directly to my real professional life which I think made my learning so much more rich, right? So things like, you know, my research project and, you know, grant writing and all of those things I were, were able to utilize very, you know, directly, right on, right early on. So I think it was a benefit, actually. Um, I, I always, you know, people always ask me, why didn't you just, you know, go back for your PhD or a full-time program? And, um, you know, I think being from an underrepresented minority group that's not, that's a bit of a luxury. I would say for us that many of us come from backgrounds of privilege to where um, we feel empowered to do that or have the financial means to do that. So I'm really thankful for all of the different terminal degree options that, um, that can be a possibility for, for, you know, working moms, for part-time students, for people that want to pay as they go. I think there's so many options now that I'm really, I really think that you need to take advantage of that and work what works, what do what works best for you. Um, and so you, having the doctor of health science worked really well for me. Um, and then from that experience, I was able to um, transition into academia. So having some adjunct opportunities through the program, through a teaching practicum, gave me the necessary skills and knowledge to teach at the graduate level. Um, learning the different pedagogies and, and just kind of, you know, what a accreditation is and everything that's required in those aspects um, to then becoming a, a full assistant uh, professor and, you know, being an academic fieldwork coordinator. So I did that for uh, quite a few years um, and then decided actually to take a break from academia to really recenter myself and my goals and my objectives until uh, then, you know, academia finding me again and me feeling like I was, it was a good time in my life um, to jump back in and to really refine my scholarly agenda and my um, academic identity even. Like what, what does it mean for me to be a scholar? What contributions do I uniquely hold that can open up some opportunities for our profession? So being a community engaged scholar practitioner is a fantastic fit for me because of all of my, you know, past experiences, both professionally and personally, um, that it really allows me to see impact and change at the community level so that we can make broader impact, um, you know, by way of policy and, and other um, initiatives. So it just, 
it life seems to unfold how um however much you give it to unfold you know if you hold on too tightly to things you don't get to see all the different avenues of possibility and so i think throughout all those experiences um i was reminded about how resilient um you can be because there are plenty of times that i definitely wanted to give up <laughs> yeah, that's like that's a lot i mean like you know having you know three kids while you're working while you're in grad school all that you know all that together i mean all them separately as well are, are huge but together it's just it, you know it could be overwhelming it could be super difficult what would you tell someone um that's a mom going through the same type of schooling and work experiences what what advice would you give them um don't be afraid to ask for help. <laughs> you know, so we talked about how um, having that first gen experience, you know, the importance of mentors. I mean, same thing, right? Like find somebody that's just a little bit further ahead or further along than you and ask them how they did it, right? So I remember the advice that was given to me was let the toys stay on the floor. You know, um, let the dishes stay undone for a minute. Um, order, you know, take out when you need to. Um, it's okay to get hire a sitter and, and tell them to occupy the kids while you get that paper done. Um, and then just having uh, people around me that, you know, were said to me, you know, it's okay to take a break at this time. So um, it's just, be, I think because I juggled so many different hats during that time, that now these new opportunities seem like absolute gifts for me. You know, speaking of this, this board of directors position, people are like, wow, you know, I heard you're one of the youngest people to ever receive an AOTA fellow, or, you know, you, you're still doing this research and you're still wanting to do this. Like, I don't think I, I know another way, right? Like this has kind of been how my career has been. Like there have been <laughs> multiple things going on throughout my life. And um, some people are just able to, to navigate that. And so I have a lot of people in my life that to tell me that that balance is okay and that um, doing what you love is okay and to pursue your passions is okay. And I think that my daughters see that now, especially. My daughters are, um, you know, I gave birth to multi-racial and ethnic children, right? So they're, they're um, Hispanic and black and wow. I, they see me do all these things and they're like, I want them to know that they can do all of these same things too, that yeah, they can so pursue good. their passions too. Yeah. Yeah. So you need to be a role model for your kids for whatever that looks like, you know, for you. So, um, that's, you know, that's, I guess I just have never known another way. So to all the young moms out there that want to go back, um, take a risk and do it and then, um, ask for help along the way. <laughs> Yeah, that's, I think that's also really, really good advice. And I, I definitely used that advice and sort of needed that advice early on as well. Um, can you share, I mean, you've done so much service. What sort of drew you to service? Was there anything specific that led you to it? What was your first experience in service? I mean, you're, you're, you've been on so many different um, committees and so many different positions. What, what sort of gave you the confidence to start that work in service? Yeah, so I think really that um, my service informs my research and my research informs my service. So uh, being a community engaged researcher is having the humility to listen to the community. And I think when you come to the community as not as a academic that like I can fix all of your problems, but as a partner, and saying like, I would love to help you think of your solutions. Um, 
the community wants your expertise and wants you to share your knowledge in a way that's beneficial for both parties, right? So um, a lot of my service opportunities have actually come by invitation. And I really think that um, they came by invitation because I was able to have a seat at the table, but to also really be a great listener at the table. Um, I, I, that's just my leadership style and my approach is that I never want to go in somewhere and say, okay, I know the problems and I'm going to fix the problems, right? I want to go in and say, help me figure out how we got to this place and let's together understand to see how we can solve it. So the service and the research really go hand in hand. Um, and so I'm really grateful to have a seat at the table that has a bit of influence now. So sitting on different boards um, within my community where I'm allowed to have voice to speak into changes, right? Or to offer a perspective that maybe hasn't been thought of yet. But that came, you know, from a lot of times of, of just being a really good listener and not being afraid to do the work. Um, so whatever tasks the community would give me, taking those tasks as if they came from, you know, the president or something. So there's no project that's beneath me or too small. And um, I think when we have that posture that uh, different opportunities come to us because um, people want to be around people that want to get things done. Um, so yeah, so my service is, is just as important to, you know, to my research as my research is to my service. That's, that's so amazing. And that really, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, um, but that's also really good for, you know, for the people that you serve. So I, I thank you for all that you've done. And you've done so much in such a short, relatively short period of time. Um, what are, what would be like a story of your greatest success? Something that you were super proud of um, so far in your career journey? Oh, I mean, I guess, I mean, wow, the AOTA fellow thing was really unexpected. I'm not, you know, I think um, I'm definitely so, so proud of that. But I would say um, something that really was my first, like, okay, like, I can do this was just getting that first award of funding. So getting my first um, Indiana Clinical Translational Science Institute award or, you know, that mechanism, um, knowing that there were people that were, um, that believed in the work that I was doing. And I think when you have like a monetary value in that, it becomes really real, right? So like, you know, you're doing, you've been doing this work over time, you, you, um, you're getting results, you're disseminating, and then to get your first grant, um, for me was huge, right? Because um, I didn't have like a postdoc. I didn't have, you know, this the amazing scholarly research training that PhDs have. You know, I, I'm always like when, when people tell me about their PhD journey, I'm always so in awe of it because to have that dedicated time is so great. Um, so I had to really learn as I went and then attend so many other research intensive um, uh, continuing education and conferences and institutes and programs that I really had to learn as I went. And so when I received my first funding award by myself, that was really a vote of confidence. I think a lot of people that are first gen also struggle, struggle with a bit of imposter syndrome um, right. because it's, it's never been done before in their family, right? So like when, it, when it's you doing it, you're like, is this real? Am I really doing it? Am I really, am I really an expert? Am I really, so you're constantly kind of questioning um, 
your identity. And so to have that validated, not that you need that external validation, but it's certainly a stamp of approval that can't be taken away from you. Um, and so with that responsibility, again, comes great privilege. So making sure that you're doing the work in a way that's honoring the community and ethically sound and has rigor and all of these things to meet your grant criteria. It just, it was a really moment that I recognized that like, okay, this is the trajectory that I'm on and I can do it. Um, and so I, I always tell my students kind of just these similar stories of um, don't give up, you know, don't give up and um, stay true to you, who you are and these opportunities will come. It's when you have that passion and desire in your work um, that it's, you can't fake that, you know, you, you're either passionate about something or, or you're passionate about something else, but it's, you can't shake that desire of inquiry. So yeah, I would say that would be a, a proud moment for me, for sure. Besides having all my kids and getting married and everything. Right, <laughs> um, right, those right. were also monumentous for me. Right, right, right. <laughs> okay, thanks for sharing that with us. What about, I mean, we all struggle at times. There are definitely challenges that come up in everyone's you know, career path. Is there any particular time that you could think of a situation where you felt like you were really challenged or it was a really difficult time for you in your career that you would like to share? I love that you asked that question because I think we need to tell our stories of failure even more than our stories of success. Um, so I, I love that you asked that. Um, there, I, I think I alluded to earlier that there are so many times that I'd wanted to give up. Um, and I was really, um, I think the time in which that became apparent to me was I was finishing uh, my juried project and I had just, um, gone through a preliminary presentation and in preparation for my final presentation um, with a mock panel. And I had just gotten like, you know, torn apart, basically. Like, did I choose the right methodology? Did I choose the right panel of experts? Did I this, you know, and it's that, you know, I'm sure it's standard, right? I mean, these, all these questions have to be asked. And um, I just remember feeling like, wow, I, I don't know why I'm doing this. Like, why am I putting myself through this? You know, maybe I should just be satisfied of ending here and being okay with that. And I remember um, being in my basement office and calling my dad and just being really torn up about it emotionally. And I remember him saying to me, um, just, you know, clear as day, you can't give up. And I'm like, oh, dad, you know, you don't understand this is too hard. And um, it's taken too long. And there's just, you know, a lot of things. And he's like, you don't have the luxury of giving up, um, you know, because there were so many people that sacrificed everything for you to be where you are. Um, and that felt like, okay, like, wow, like he's right. Um, you know, my, my dad grew up as a migrant worker. So, you know, very early on as a child, he's transient and, and picking the food that we have at our dinner table. Um, and he worked really hard his whole life so that we could all attend college. And I don't take that lightly, that the reason why he worked so hard was so that I could succeed. Um, and so that really gave me the motivation, you know, wanting to just give up on everything and kind of walk away. And then for him to tell me that, you know, I stand on the shoulders of people that didn't give up. Um, 
that meant something. So, so I think each of us has a story that's probably really similar um, to that. And I think it's in those times where we don't know how we can go on that we need to remember those stories of failure so that we can say, yeah, I, I, I did this before I overcame this before, or I found a different way, or I had a new solution. And so, um, I would say that it, it was a moment like that, that is just as critical in my trajectory than, you know, my biggest accomplishment. Wow. That, that's, I mean, that's some really heavy, you know, heavy, heavy words from your dad, but so important, so important to hear. And I know for myself, I, I had just, um, had a book that's going to be published in a couple of months, but and one book that I just self-published because it was placed on hold because of the pandemic. And I remember thinking to myself when it was placed on hold, what am I going to do? Like, should I publish this on my own? Should I let it sit? Like, what should I do? And for me, that, that to me was like a failure, you know, like not that it was really in my hands, but I felt like I had failed in terms of producing that planner. And one of my colleagues actually um, said to me, she said, you have to do this. You must get this out into the OT world. And that's really like her words also had the same sort of like effect on me, like you need to get this done. And that was like a clear like go on, uh, on getting that planner self-published. So um, thank you for sharing that story with us. I really, you know, I really appreciate it. So it's so important for us to really to think about not only our successes, but also our failures and what things that, you know, definitely challenge us um, and we grow from those experiences for sure. Um, now onto the board of directors position. How did this, you know, how did you, you know, sort of think about applying for this? What was, you know, the path towards this and what can you bring to this position? What's your mission um, and your vision for bringing to this board of directors position? <laughs> wow. Um, yeah. So where should I start with this? Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I've just really been inspired this year. Um, I'm the chair current chairperson um, for the Affiliate State Association of Presidents. And state presidents, man, I, I say this to them all the time. And so they will probably chuckle if they hear this, but they are some of the most dedicated and passionate people that I know. Um, and, you know, I, I'm immediate past president of Indiana. I'm like, was I this dedicated and passionate? I hope so. <laughs> During this time of COVID, I have seen just amazing ingenuity. Um, among among our presidents and amazing flexibility and the the ability to pivot, you know, during COVID and to provide um, policy and guidance and to to gear themselves up and, and disseminate education and best practice. And I just was so inspired by all of this. And um, just to have a, you know, a, a small role in an amazing supporting cast that I believe I can bring some of that same energy and ability to create new change and envision a new, um, I don't want to say association, but I, I do envision leadership looking a bit different for AOTA. Um, I would love to bring, you know, diversity of thought and opinion, um, not only obviously racially and ethnically, but to have um, just age, you know, diversity in age. Um, there's, there's just so much that I think that we can do together when we listen. Like we, I talked about this concept of, you know, collaborative and collective leadership where there's, there's a huge listening ear. 
to listen to our membership and our body because I think that we already have the answers. Um, and I think if we put on our, you know, our ability to listen with intent, um, that we can make some really bold changes um, that can equip us to be um, the profession that we know that we are and we're capable of um, moving forward. I think we have spent a lot of time looking back on the way we used to do things or when we were this way or that way. Um, and things really aren't going to be the same after we come out of COVID. Um, and so I, I hope to bring just a fresh perspective and way of thinking. And I know that I'm a great um, collaborative leader. I know that I'm a change leader. And, and I know that I have um, immense respect for diversity in all of its forms. And I wanna make sure that that message is carried through not as an additional thought, but woven into the fabric of who we are as a profession. Um, because to fully understand one's person and meaningfulness and occupation, you have to understand and have humility with their identity. And so I want to know what's the identity of AOTA's membership body? Where have we missed the mark? Where can we um, repair some maybe old wounds? Where can we proceed forward and have a new vision? Um, and I think we're real ripe to do that. I think there are amazing uh, board of directors currently sitting, um, and I just hope to be given the opportunity to, to sit amongst the table again and, and to make some decisions. I think they all, they all start around a table. So um, again, I think it's just a risk I'm taking, right? It's a risk, um, but I've, I've never done things in a way that have been um, orderly fashioned, right? So um, the timing feels uh, right right now and, and I hope it works out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, your words are so powerful and, and, and I really, I totally, totally agree with all that you said and, you know, definitely wish you so much luck going into this election. I think that you'll definitely play a, an amazing part um, in the association in that position. And um, I want to thank you for all that you do and, and all of this power and empowerment that you're bringing to um, young OTs and young educators and those looking into service and research positions. So thank you so much for your time and for all of your um, advice and experiences so far. If you were going to give um, students or practitioners one piece of advice, what would you tell them if they were early on in their career? Be who you are because you're exactly what um, the community needs, you're exactly what your client needs, you're exactly what your organization um, needs, and there's nobody else in this world that can do exactly what you do in the way that you do it. Um, that would be my advice. Yes. <laughs> that, that, that is so amazing and so, so true. And you definitely embody that for sure. Um, if I want to just let our listeners know that the elections open, AOTA elections open on January 6th. So everyone should vote. All AOTA members should vote. Um, if you'd like to follow um, Dr. Garcia Wilburn on Instagram, follow her at Vic, V-I-C-W-I-L, on Facebook at Victoria Garcia Wilburn and on Twitter at at Vic will thank you so much for joining us it's been a pleasure and i really value your time and all the service that you do for our organization thank you so much for having me and thank you for creating this platform i hope you enjoyed this podcast thank you to the student contributors 
If you liked it, please subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google. You can also follow us on social media, on Facebook at MyOTJourney, and on Instagram at MyOTJourney. Thanks for listening. Go OT!